Ladybird with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Welcome to the Robots Podcast. My name is Jana and in this episode we learn all about Ladybird, an intelligent robot for the vegetable industry. By now we're sure many have realised that Australia is big on agricultural robotics. And so it's no surprise that Ladybird comes from Dananda. It was built in a collaborative project between the University of Sydney, Horticulture Australia and Ausveg. Ladybird is a lightweight, omnidirectional electric vehicle with sensing manipulation and communication equipment and supporting hardware and software. It is ultimately meant to drive autonomously around vegetable farms, gathering data that's useful for growers, contractors and harvesters. Our interviewer Ron spoke to Dr James Underwood, Senior Research Fellow at the University of Sydney, Australia Centre for Field Robotics, whose research interests are focused on machine perception. Dr Underwood spoke to Ron about the Ladybird project and the use of robotics in agriculture. Good morning, James. If I can get you first to introduce yourself to the podcast listeners. Yeah, so hi, uh, my name is uh, Dr. James Underwood and I'm a, a researcher at the Australian Centre for Field Robotics, which is a robotics research group at the University of Sydney. And personally, I've been working uh, for the last several years in uh, applications of robotics to agriculture, uh, specifically focusing on kind of ground-based crops like uh, vegetables and, and more recently cereals and so on, grains, and, and also uh, tree crops, so you know, fruit typically. Great. We've heard a lot about a particular robot um, that you're uh, working on. I don't know if it's the only one, but it's the one that seems to be predominant, uh, called Ladybird. If you could uh, describe the work you're doing on that particular machine. Yeah, so uh, the Ladybird is uh, is the robot that we actually built that one really, we custom designed it for the, the vegetable uh, uh, industry. So um, where we've also done a lot of research actually on a different platform called Shrimp, which we've used in tree crops. Uh, that was more of a kind of general purpose uh, vehicle, whereas this one has really been designed specifically for the, uh, the vegetable crop industry. Um, and so we, we built this as a kind of um, uh, a research platform which would have a number of different sensors that are uh, relevant in terms of um, a new wave of research in, uh, in, in crop sensing and so on. Um, it's uh, also equipped with a, a general purpose um, manipulator arm so we can actually interact with the crops. Um, and then in terms of the physical kind of construction of the system, it um, uh, has omnidirectional wheels so the wheels can point, all four wheels point in any direction so it's a very nimble, manoeuvrable platform. You know, we can go from one row to the next without uh, using very much of the headlamp because we can kind of just come out and go straight sideways and then back in. Um, and another interesting feature of the platform is that it's um, covered in solar panels and um, uh, these actually have two functions. We, we have the um, covers so that we can actually shield some of the sensors underneath that from the direct sunlight so we get better imagery of the crops that we're looking at. 
but also then, of course, you know, we can cover that with solar panels and use the energy that we're getting, uh, you know, in these typically very open field applications. So on a sunny day, we're getting, uh, you know, um, a lot of energy into into that all-electric powered system that allows us to, to keep going for days on end without recharging. Great. Okay. We talked about the, well, you briefly talked about the sensors on the ladybird, etc. The frequencies you were talking about were infrared, optical, there's laser scanning, uh, 3D imaging involved. Is there any other uh, type of sensory um, equipment involved in the machine itself? Um, we also do, um, we use, uh, I don't know if you mentioned stereo, that's, I mean, that's just a variant of, of general camera, um, so allowing us to, you know, estimate the 3D shape and structure of what we're looking at with the cameras and and we also have a couple of sensors that are um like uh, in terms of uh gps guidance and things like that so um, we have uh, an inertial um sensor on board as well and and so on um but the list that you've you've mentioned basically basically covers it so we're looking at a lot of the different parts of the of the um uh optical spectrum as you say from visible through to near infrared and so on and we have hyperspectral sensors to, to look at that spectrum in detail and then uh, also with the uh, thermal imaging, which is uh, long wave infrared as well. So, yeah, covering a, a large sort of range of the electromagnetic spectrum in, in our sensing approach there. Okay. What are the difficulties in uh, autonomous pest control? Uh, actually, not not just pest control. It is um, weed control. Are you using other things apart from uh, chemical sprays, uh, steam, microwave, mechanical? Have you looked at things like that? So we, we have done a little bit of uh, like an exploration in, in terms of, um, I mentioned we have this general purpose manipulator robot arm on the platform and so um, we can put a um, like a, util, a utensil on the end of that to um, actually mechanically uh, remove weeds and so on. But we haven't really at this stage done extensive testing in that regard. And, and there'd be, you know, quite a bit of work to be done there in terms of in particular, you know, how fast could that type of thing be done? You know, we could uh, stop and then identify the weed and then move the arm into position to, to remove it. But would that be fast enough for realistic kind of commercial applications is, is a question that we, we don't really know the answer to at this point. There are some other, other groups around the world who've looked at, you know, for example, mechanical weeding, uh, in particular using like a, a stamping mechanism, which so rather than actually sort of carefully, you know, uh, hoeing out the weed like that, you just sort of punch it directly from above and, and things like that. And that, that like type of technology looks like it might show some promise and, you know, allow these sorts of things to be done more rapidly. But certainly uh, our initial kind of viewpoint on this is that <clears throat> by using a very rapid and targeted spray mechanism, which, you know, can be used even while uh, the vehicle is in motion, for example, you know, identifying the weeds and just shooting at them as, as they go past, while, we, while it is desirable to remove the chemical element altogether, I think this is probably a good first step because, you know, we can really reduce the, the quantity of the chemical that's used, but maybe keep up the pace uh, of the robot while it goes over um, and deals with these weeds. Uh, but, but certainly uh, mechanical uh, weeding is, is something that we're sort of broadly interested in because you remove that chemical element altogether and that may be a really uh, interesting way to deal with herbicide resistance and, and problems of that nature. Great. I, I don't know if I brought it up, but microwave was looked at at one stage i don't know how viable that is uh, is that something else that um has been acknowledged uh? yeah i mean uh I, I think there are a few groups who have sort of um 
uh, looked into that. Uh, to my knowledge, I, I don't know that there are any kind of sort of commercially viable systems of that nature yet, uh, but that is also something that, that we're interested in. Um, I mean, there are a number of challenges that have to be solved with a kind of microwave-type application. For example, you know, the power consumption that that device would require, um, safety considerations in terms of potentially having high voltages in, in that system and, and things of that nature. But I believe that the, the research shows that it can be an effective mechanism for dealing with weeds. And certainly, you know, in terms of the construction of such a system with a robot and so on, they could be put together. There's no reason why not. Um, I, I think that there's more work to be done in that regard, though, to sort of, I guess, do a proof of concept of a, of a, of a useful whole system. Okay. Okay. This is an interesting one uh, for me. How do you create the perception of a weed or a pest in an algorithm to create software to deal with it. Uh, is it uh, visual references, colours, leaf shapes, like in botany, or um, the location of it versus where the plant is? Yeah, well, uh, this is an interesting question for us too. And, uh, you know, this is exactly the kind of uh, types of algorithms that we're, that we're interested in and, and so on. So uh, all of the things that you mentioned are, are relevant. Obviously, what you need to be able to do is, is to detect those weeds, you know, reliably. So to minimise sort of false detections where you, you actually think part of the crop is a weed and you would then, you know, spray it um, erroneously. So you want to avoid that kind of thing. And, and similar you need to have a sufficiently high rate of detection uh, to actually deal with the weed infestations. It's no good if you go through the field and, and miss, you know, a large percentage of the, the weeds that are there. So, um, so the objective is obviously to try and do this really reliably with, you know, very low error rates. Now, all of the things you mentioned can be used to detect weeds. So you can use just a, a colour camera and, and in some cases, you know, the weeds are a sufficiently different colour. You could um, use hyperspectral sensing, which lets you kind of really... It's the same, it's the same sort of thing as a colour camera, although maybe it, it tends to go into, you know, uh, into the near-infrared ranges as well. The key with that is it's a, a very detailed way of looking at colour. And so where you might have two things that are almost the same shade of green, if there's a kind of statistically significant, albeit nuanced, difference in the colour, then maybe a hyperspectral sensor can kind of pick that out more reliably. Um, and that's an example where then the cost of the sensor goes up, but it may make the uh, algorithms more simple and the whole system may be more reliable. But of course, if you can do it with a colour camera, that's, that's a better approach. The, the key with all of these things, uh, you know, where you're using colour, you're using texture, you know, all, all of these different things together to try to clearly separate the appearance of weeds and the crop is that you have to be able to deal with the variability that you get, not just in, you know, that different variants of the same type of, I mean, different instances of the same species of weed will look different, but also you get a lot of variation just due to uh, sunlight changes and, and things like that. And so being able to do this reliably is really a key, uh, you know, uh, thing and and it's quite a challenging task. Uh, in a lot of cases, the approach that we take, sort of from the state of the art in terms of computer vision, is to try not to specify hand-coded rules. So we try to avoid saying a weed is something that's this green and uh, that's this size or, or something like that. We try to get large data sets where we can 
and learn directly from the data what facets of that data from the different sensors uh, really best delineate the weed class and the and the crop class in question. Um, so that's kind of a, a, a standard approach in machine learning. So it, it is generally based on colour and it's based on texture, but not necessarily in a kind of uh, human-specified way, like a particular shape or, or a particular colour or, or something like that. You mentioned uh, you mentioned the position of the, the weed's location on the ground. That's another really important one because crops tend to be laid in uh, in straight lines, you know, with a cedar. Um, and so the probability of any vegetation that you might find off that seed line, it, the probability, you know, is much higher that it's actually a weed. And you can encode that knowledge into the system uh, and actually let it learn what weeds look like by finding the examples that are off the seed line, learning from those, and then learning automatically to find those same weeds amongst the seed line as well. Um, and so there's that kind of approach that we're we're taking. So there, there can be a lot of a lot of sophistication in in how that's done, um, and and that's kind of necessary in order to to get those accuracies up and to be able to do weeding once the the field is no longer fallow, basically. When, when, we're, when the field is, you know, basically fallow, detecting weeds is easy because anything that's green you can just shoot at and, and there are commercial applications of that already, yeah. Cool. So a generalist uh, approach. So what are the advantages and disadvantages of autonomous harvesting, fertilising and planting today? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a number of, of different adva- uh, advantages to that. I mean, um, one of them obviously is labour saving and uh, a lot of the uh, growers that we talk to, that's kind of top of their list because they have um, difficulties with the labour supply in Australia and I, and I understand there are similar issues in, in other kind of similar countries around the world. A lot of the work is done by temporary kind of uh, migrant workers and that sort of thing. Uh, we have a, an ageing workforce. Um, I think the, the main the, the average age of uh, farm workers in this country is actually surprisingly high, like 55 or 60 years old, and the younger generation don't seem to be showing as much interest to get involved in that in that area. So uh, when we talk to growers, uh, labour, you know, the cost of labour, but also the, the kind of security of, of the labour force and that sort of thing is pretty much, you know, number one on their list. So clearly autonomous systems have an advantage in in that regard. Uh, but there are many other advantages that you, you start to get when you have an autonomous system, such as the kind of repeatability, you know, the ability to sort of operate 24-7 without getting tired and, and keeping that attention to detail, you know, at 100% capacity for the entire time that it's working and, and things like that. Um, there are advantages in terms of buying biosecurity, uh, applications in terms of disease detection and management and, and things like that, uh, and also advantages in terms of you know having fewer instances where people handle the, the food that we eat. Um, all of these things have benefits for the, the quality of the produce and, and the sort of you know, safety of the, of the food and, and all of those kind of things. So it's, you know, wherever you, whichever stone you, you pick up and look under, you see a whole number of, of different sort of advantages that might not necessarily be the top of the, the growers list, but when you start to look at them all coming together, in this one system that can provide many different advantages all together, um, then it starts to look like, you know, uh, a pretty good way to, to move. Great. Okay. What would be the ideal goal in crop management using multiple small uh, robot tractors? Yeah, so again, a, a number of advantages. One of the key things with uh, using smaller autonomous systems like the sort, like the Ladybird and, and so on is that you have a much lighter... Uh, mass in terms of the vehicle and that is that has benefits in terms of soil compaction so you know productivity in farming uh, you know over the in broad acre farming over the last you know few decades and, and so on 
has really been driven by getting bigger and bigger equipment so that the, the one person driving that tractor can, you know, tend to more and more hectares per day simply by virtue of having a bigger machine. And the cost of that is much greater soil damage and soil compaction that that causes. And this, this has been kind of mitigated to some extent by having controlled traffic farming where the vehicle, you know, puts its wheels over exactly the same position so the uh, extent of where the damage is caused is kind of minimised. But, but still, they, you know, the size of these machines just really does do a lot of damage to, to the soil. So smaller vehicles means, you know, you, you really uh, avoid that problem. Um, then, as I say you know, before, you, you lift up the stone and look underneath and there's all these other, other advantages just jumping out at you. Um, for example, if, uh, you know, by virtue of having a smaller machine, you might need to have several of them to replicate the same number of hectares per hour that you could do in a much bigger machine. But now, if one of your 10 smaller machines breaks down completely, you're still running at 90% capacity. Whereas when that one big machine, which costs a fortune incidentally, but if that one big machine breaks down, which they do, you're down to 0% capacity and, and there's very little that you can do about that. So you kind of, by having a you know, teams of smaller platforms, you, you get a scalability and you get a kind of, say, a, um, a resilience to, to malfunction in the sense that you can keep going with a subset of that team. So a small farmer could have just one of these systems. A really big farmer, I mean, you know, really big property could use, you know, 100 of them or, or however many are required. So it's scalable, better for breakages and things like that, better for soil compaction, um, you know, so a number of, a number of different um Things there. Is there also an approach to integrated farm management uh, using uh, farm bots, both aerial and ground, in the production? Is is that a viable option as well? I mean, it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't exist today as a, as a sort of system that you can just buy and, and use. So, but we're talking in the kind of research side, you know, where where it's all where the technology is heading and so on. And definitely, uh, you know, there there would be scenarios where aerial vehicles, uh, you know, can team up with ground vehicles, you know, to very effectively manage um, certain aspects of, of farms. I, I I think we haven't seen it enough in practice to to get a kind of hands-on sort of view of of what those um, what those benefits actually look like. But but things like I mean. Uh, you know, it's uh, it takes longer, for example, for a, a ground-based vehicle to scan across an entire, um, you know, an entire paddock, whereas it's much qu- uh, quicker for a, a flight vehicle to go over the top at a higher altitude and maybe get a kind of lower resolution snapshot of the status of the crop over a broader area. Then if there were... Um, if there was a identified from that data a need to then go and do some kind of targeted management response based on what you saw from the air, uh, you could then send the vehicle specifically to the locations on the ground that need attention, you know, whatever that might be. So I think, you know, it is likely that there'll be combinations of different bits of technology that that work together and, you know, combine in that way. Okay. From the grassroots approach, um, what and where are the interests in local farmers? Where do where do they want us to go with, with robotics? Well, I mean, I mentioned certainly um, uh, labour-saving being top of, top of the list of the growers that we've spoken to. Um, so I think they'd like to see more technology coming online that can, you know, either assistive technology that allows, you know, greater areas to be managed in some sense using this technology rather than doing everything by hand or, or technology that in some cases can uh, completely replace certain functions that, are currently done now by uh, by the manual labour. So you know, I, I think growers would like to 
would like to see that. And, and this can include a, a number of different things. I mean, for example, uh, weeding is something that, you know, um, that uh, depending on the crop and the time of year and things like that, certainly, you know, there's a manual labour component involved in that. I, I've been to uh, farms where they have to send people out to, to just look at the field. So they walk the whole field and look at the crop to make sure that there are no, uh, let's say, contaminants in the field. Like, And there can be, you know, leaves that blow in from adjacent um, native trees and things like that. You know, you don't want gum leaves or whatever in your bag of spinach and coals. And um, as a consumer, we're fussy and coals pass on that fussiness to the growers. So they spend labour in that regard. And that's something, again, where, you know, you could have robots going out and, and doing that job. So, you know, a lot of different sort of labour-saving type approaches, you know, would be tend to be sort of high up on the on the list. But of course, you know, where we are now, uh, we're sort of doing early prototypes and things like that. I mean, you know, growers are going to want to see the technology be actually ready to be used in a, in a commercial sense. And we still need to uh, move in that direction, you know. Um, we've done early prototypes of some of these kind of functions, but to get a lot more, let's say, uh, field miles under our belt before we're ready to kind of sell the, the equipment and that kind of thing. Okay. So where do you see the future in robotics, say, in the next 10 or 20 years, for instance, in agriculture? <laughs> well, uh, 10 to 20 years is a very, very long time, in, uh, especially in terms of technological progress. I mean, it's, it's really hard, I think, to predict that far forwards uh, in, in with any kind of accuracy with technology. But within that time frame, I mean, certainly within a 20-year time frame, I think it would be good to see that, let's say, the you know entire processes of the production of certain types of crops could be done in a kind of digital fashion. So I don't necessarily mean that there are no people involved or something like that, right? Um, I more mean that you've got technology at all the right key points in, in that uh, production cycle such that, um, you know, all the information that's relevant to growing the crop in an optimal kind of way, it's all recorded and stored and and, um, and used in terms of making optimal decisions and, and putting down the right inputs and so on to grow the best possible crop, for that crop to be as resilient as possible to seasonal variations and, and things like this, all using kind of digital technology. Uh, and that, that can be a big combination of different types of actual, um, you know, hardware, like robotics is, is one part, um, but it can also be, you know, stationary sensors. It can be satellite data or UAV data. Um, it can be um, handheld sensors in, in many cases or uh, sensors mounted onto conventional vehicles and a whole number of different things like that where all that data is then kind of coming together to really address all the information requirements across the whole production cycle. That coupled with then uh, various sort of automated and, and um optimise processes in terms of harvesting and, and things like that. So I think, you know, if we say in 20 years' time, then, uh, you know, I hope by then that we've actually managed to really digitise this this whole system. In the nearer term, I think that we'll start to see individual applications be kind of ticked off the list. It's not a general purpose robot in the next five years that can just do all these different things, but, you know, maybe a, a package uh, that you can add to a tractor that will specifically target weeds, you know, in the non-fallow period, for example. That's a piece of technology that will come into commercial existence fairly soon and, and could be kind of integrated you know, fairly easily into current practices. Uh, you might then see um, certain crops that now are, are not harvested in a mechanised way start to become, um, let's say, solved in terms of the, the mechanisation. Uh, you know, a lot of the crops are harvested in a mechanised way. You know, like with spinach, you have a, a machine that has a saw at the front and cuts it off and up a conveyor belt it goes and so on. I mean, it's all manually driven 
but it's, it's quite an efficient method for harvesting. But in asparagus, you can't do the same thing. So where those crops are currently not mechanised, there's opportunities to tick them off the list. Not necessarily one special harvesting robot with arms that goes out and, and deals with all the different crops, but let's say an asparagus harvester, and it's using kind of modern robotics technology and so on to do the job, and it just does that one job very well. And then one, so over the next you know five years and things, we start to see one by one these kind of uh, specific applications getting ticked off the list, and eventually you start to get this kind of matrix of connectivity between all these different applications that start talking to each other and dealing with the whole production cycle, um, you know, in, in the bigger picture. Okay. What do you think are the uh, the options for or new players to robotics, uh, for instance, in agriculture? Are there a lot of opportunities for, uh, obviously, A, graduates, B, uh, engineers? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's a fairly broad question, but... Uh, uh, I mean, I think so. I think the industry by and large is, is sort of seeing the potential in this kind of technology. And so throughout the whole chain, we're starting to see more funding, more funding in, you know, uh, fundamental or blue sky research, more funding in applied research, leading towards more co- commercialization opportunities, more commercialization funding to get those off the ground and, and, and go forth. Um, you know, more commercialization opportunities popping up all the time. So, uh, and then, then of course, you know, brand new opportunities in terms of building service companies that that supply these services or, uh, you know, and so on. And uh, as soon as these, you know, I mean, uh, we're sort of at the start of, of the ramp up, I think, at, at this stage, and we will start to see uh, some of these companies become, um, let's say, that their products will start to be used more universally, and they'll be the best practice in terms of farming, and so then we'll have hundreds and hundreds of these systems, whatever they look like, out there in the field, and they'll all need servicing and maintenance and things like that, just like tractors do today. I mean, there's no magic behind ro- robotics that somehow you don't need to maintain them and look after them and, and always develop them and make them better and, and all these kind of things, and so at every stage in the pipeline, um, you know, we see uh, there, there will be, there are and there will be increasing opportunities from blue sky research all the way through to, you know, um, the actual farming practice. And, you know, we, we hope that actually, you know, I mentioned earlier uh, in this interview, I mentioned that, um, you know, the demographics in terms of who are working on the farm today, it's kind of an ageing population uh, and the younger people tend not to be so interested in farming as a, as a career choice right now. So it's one of our kind of hopes that the as, as it becomes more high-tech, that it might actually attract, again, the younger generation into those sorts of roles, you know, and actually make those kind of jobs, you know, more, more attractive to them and, and fix that kind of demographic issue. Yes. Okay, finally, I would like to wrap up the conversation with you, James, by thanking you on behalf of the podcast for a most interesting session. Yeah, you're most welcome. I uh, hope your, uh, your viewers find it interesting too. And that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, there's more information on our website at robohub.org, where you can also find a wealth of other robotics-related articles and videos. Join us again for the next podcast in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Ladybird with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.